You can open up your copy of the Bible, if you have one, uh, to the very beginning of the Bible. Uh, if you were here with us last Sunday, uh, we looked at these same verses, so this is not deja vu, uh, even though we're inside. Uh, we're going to look at these first two verses more in detail, but uh, we'll get to that uh, here in just a few moments. We wanted to share a few things. This is always a, a busy time of year in the life of any congregation, and so I wanted, uh, while we're all together, to share a few things. Uh, one is just a special welcome to you if you're a guest. I know on Labor Day, weekend. Some of you are from out of town, maybe visiting family. Some of you uh, may uh, just be, have been invited though. You live here locally and somebody invited you or you found our church somehow. But if you're a guest here, uh, we're grateful that you are here with us and we've been praying for you and trust that the Lord will minister to you during our time. We'd love to get to know you a little bit, especially if you live here locally and might be interested in learning more about our church. A way you could help us with that is fill out a little connection card. There's a paper version of it on the back of that program you likely received as you came in. You could fill that out if you wanted to do it that way and take it out into the lobby and turn to the left. After the service, there's a counter where some folks will be. Or you could do the same thing digitally. Just follow that QR code. It's on the back of that program too. Follow it. Fill out the same form. We'll follow up with you. Uh, but we're grateful uh, that you're with us. I also want to say uh, my weekly thank you to each of you for your generosity uh, with the resources that God has given to you, the ways that you have given those to the, our common fund as a church. And we continue to seek to be faithful uh, in the use of those, the stewardship of those gifts, and so I wanted to say thank you to that. Uh, to you for that. And then two other things before we turn to the word. One, uh, this the end of this summer, some of you were away for summer break or some of you may have been on trips and whatnot, but we took several weeks and we talked about Christian community and what that's supposed to look like in the life of a church. And we talked about how as a church we're trying to kind of relaunch, retool what we have called life groups as a church and relaunch them as community groups this fall. It's kind of a slow process of doing, but uh, one of the things we're trying to, to get a pulse of is for each of you as individuals or couples or as a family is whether you've already been in a group or whether you haven't and you'd like to start, uh, whether you'd like to like re-up, like saying, yeah, I would like to continue in this new format, or whether you'd say, I'd like to join in. Uh, that sounds appealing to me. We created a URL on our website that talks about what those groups are like, what we're, how we're envisioning them, and then there's a little form that you could fill out. It'd take maybe two minutes max to let us know who you are, kind of what your situation is, what your availability is, and then we're gonna, over the next several weeks, start to try to uh, maybe reform some groups, launch some new groups. Uh, we're gonna be doing that over the next several weeks. So if you could help us out by filling out that uh, form, that would be great. And the last thing I wanted to mention before we uh, officially turn to Genesis 1 uh, is a serving opportunity. Uh, we've, been, we've assembled a group together of some of the members of our church over the last few months who have prayerfully started to think about ways we could be ministering to people more actively in our community. And one of the first ideas we've had that we're trying to run with is joining in with an organization called Hands of Hope. It's based out of Indianapolis, but it's really grown to be a national organization. And what they try to do is to care for people who are fostering uh, foster parents or who are recently adoptive parents and to bring Christians or really anybody in the community but especially churches around those people to tangibly care for them to be able to help them in this complex difficult phase that they're in and so we're going to have a training here at the end of September on a Wednesday night Wednesday September 27th during our normal Wednesday activities that are going to be starting back up soon where if you'd be interested in being part
part of one of those teams potentially that would walk with a family in our community to care for them, get to know them, serve them over the course of their beginning into uh, adoption or through their fostering process. We'd love that you could come to that meeting and it's going to be more like a training. So you can look at the events page on our church website. There's some details and there's a way you can indicate that you'd like to participate in that. A little button you can click that'll take you to a form. But uh, I'm looking forward to that. I think it's going to be a, a small step that we can take, but a helpful step that we can take to minister to people uh, right here in our own community. All right. If you have found Genesis 1, uh, we're going to read in just a moment verses 1 and 2 of this text. But as I was preparing for this message, this is a, a daunting task to start at the very beginning of the scriptures. Uh, but one of the people that I have read the most of outside of the scriptures themselves to think about creation and what God did in it was the writings of a man named Francis Schaeffer. Uh, he lived through the middle of last century, which makes me sound very old, uh, but we are in 2023. Uh, he lived through the middle of, of the 20th century. He was a, a philosopher, a teacher, an influential man uh, all around the world. And I've heard several, I've read several authors talk about him, and I couldn't run down an exact quote of this, but I, I heard several people say this about him, that he would often imagine, because he had a, a huge heart for the lost and for unbelievers, and he would imagine, if I had one hour like I knew for, that I had 60 minutes to talk to an unbeliever and to try to win them over uh, to the Lord. He tried to think, how would I allocate my time? Like how much would I spend on this subject or that subject? And he would say this, that if he had 60 minutes to talk to an unbeliever, and this may sound stunning to you, he said he would spend about 55 minutes talking about creation and all that it entails, and all that it implies for us as human beings. And then he'd spend the last five minutes telling them at long last about Jesus, and about the cross, and the resurrection, and how uh, we can be part of a new creation. So he'd spend 55 and five. I don't know how you would imagine an hour. That's not how I would probably think of it. Uh, but I, I get what he is saying the more that I've read this text, that I've been kind of marinating in the beginning of Genesis, because I think he was on to something with that, that he knew and understood the significance of the subject of creation in ways that I think we don't. Uh, he knew that, it, that this subject of creation and what you think about it, what you believe about it, is kind of like a continental divide of sorts. Uh, there's a point on each continent where if you, I've heard it described this way, if you're standing at the continental divide and you like poured a large amount of water over here, it would end up in one ocean, ultimately. Uh, if you pour it over here, it will end up in another ocean, that it's a very dividing uh, point that's going to end up in very different destinations. And I think Francis Schaeffer knew, and I think Moses, who wrote this that we're about to read, knew that this subject of creation is like a huge continental divide. Uh, that what you believe about it, whether you understand us as created beings or uncreated beings, has immense impact. It leads you in very, very different directions, spiritually, philosophically. And so it's more important, I think, than we often consider, more important than we think it is. Because if we are created beings, if you are a created being made by God, that has huge implications for you, right? If you are a creative being, it means that God has authority over you as your creator, right? That there is a being outside of you that has authority over you, and it means you have accountability to him as your creator, 
right? If you are a created being, you should have a sense, and we'll see this, you should have a sense of awe and wonder before this God that made you, uh, that, that spoke this whole world into existence. You should have humility before him, right? You should feel a sense of responsibility before him to live as he calls you to live. If you're a created being, it means that this universe actually has order, right? That it has purpose, that there is significance in things, that, that there is truth, right? It means that there's morals, that there are moral right and wrong, that there's objective things that we can know and not know. But if we are not created beings, if we step to the other side of that continental divide on this question, then we're left with what Francis Schaeffer would often call uncreatedness. It's not a super creative term, but uncreatedness. And he, he said this, he said, if you believe in uncreatedness, then the world just stands there, like autonomous to itself, without solutions, without answers. Uh, that is what uncreatedness leads us to. And so if we remove this, the creator and our createdness, any attempt that you try to make to find significance, to try to find meaning, to find, try to find truth, to try to find hope, any attempt at those things is futile and empty if we are uncreated beings. But if we are created, the exact opposite is true. And so as we come to the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of the Holy Scriptures, I don't think it's any surprise that this is the subject we begin with, is the beginning and the creation of the world, the creation of the universe. And this text, these two verses, are going to address this subject very simply, very directly, uh, but there is much that we can learn from it. And I, I think there is much at stake with whether you believe this or not. Much at stake uh, with what, whether you believe this to be true and how you respond to it. Last week, if you were with us outside for Food Truck Sunday, we read these two verses, but we kind of did so as an overview of the book of Genesis. We shared about how uh, every story, yours, mine, the story of our country, the story of anything, has backstory to it, right? And how every backstory has significance. We talked about that. And I encouraged us as we go through these first 11 chapters of Genesis this school year, I, I encourage us to try to read these verses, read these chapters in three ways. To read them as history, because they are, and they're depicted that way. To read them as literature, because they are uh, packaged in a way to try to be memorable and to try to make sense to us. So to read them as literature, and then to read them as prologue. To remember that these are the start of a story that continues into much deeper waters as we go throughout time and history. And so as we begin uh, reading this text this morning, I want to try to do those very things. To read it as history, read it as literature, read it as prologue, and lay a, a good foundation. These two verses, they lay a foundation for everything that's going to come in the book of Genesis, everything that's going to come throughout the scriptures, everything that's going to come in all of history, these two verses lay the foundation for it. Next week, we'll start into verse 3 and down, which we're more familiar with probably, the six days of creation and how God uh, created the way that he created. But I want us to start this morning, verses 1 through 2. And so I'm going to read these uh, that Moses recorded for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and then we'll walk back through them together. So follow along with me in Genesis 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the preaching of it. 
I like to summarize uh, a text in just one sentence typically, and this I'm, I'm summarizing in a very simple way, and the effect I think it's supposed to have upon us as individuals and as a church, and it, I would say it simply this way, is that we should stand in awe of our Creator. Stand in awe of our Creator. I would say to you, stand in awe of your Creator. And I, I want to walk through this text under, under three headings, uh, seeing why we should stand in awe of Him. Uh, what this text teaches us about Him, what it shows us about Him, the impact that it should have on us. I want to use three headings. Uh, they're going to be uh, three words to start with as summary, stage, and spirit. So we're going to see the summary that's given in verse 1. And then in verse 2, we're going to see the stage that is set for the six days of creation. And we're going to see the spirit hovering over the face of the deep, or face of the waters. And so I want to start uh, under the heading of summary given. Uh, that's what I, how I would understand verse 1 to be. Uh, verse 1, the very beginning of the Holy Bible starts this way, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, I would understand this. I think that this text is supposed to serve, this sentence, this singular sentence, this simple sentence, is supposed to serve as a summary of all of chapter 1. That, that it's not intended to be like a first step, like, hey, God created the heavens and the earth, and then verse 2, the next thing happens, the next thing happens, the next thing happens. Verse 1, I think it's supposed to be like a banner, like a heading over chapter 1, if you want to imagine it that way. Uh, Moses didn't write in chapters, but I think literally it's supposed to function as a header, as a summary of everything that's about to follow. It's not like a chronological first step. It's not, I think, intended to be the start of day 1, that doesn't start until verse 3, which we'll get to next week, but it's a summary statement. It functions, there's a lot of these in Genesis. Usually they're phrased as, these are the generations of fill in the blank, and then the next part of the story unfolds. This is kind of like a precursor to all those we're going to see later in Genesis, like a summary statement to get the story started. But what a summary it is, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That, that is packed with significance. Uh, there's so much that you could wring out of that. I want to point out just a couple of things uh, that I think are being communicated through that simple summary sentence. The very first one and the most obvious one is this, that God created everything. God created everything. When he says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It's not like he's just saying there's just these two things that he made and then everything else, you know, we don't know how it came to be there. It's a way, literally, of putting these two phrases together to be comprehensive, to say heavens and earth is supposed to mean everything, yeah, the seen and unseen, everything in the entire universe and beyond that is outside of God himself. God made those things. God created those things. Uh, that, just word-wise, when, when people give, say their wedding vows, when they say for richer and for poorer, it's not like they mean, hey, if we're like middle class, middle of the road, yeah, we could opt out of this, right? Like richer and poorer are these supposed to be this way of saying through all things, like no matter what financial state we're in, right? And so there's all these ways we do that with language, but heavens and earth are supposed to encompass Everything that there is outside of God himself, that God made those things. And over the course of these six days that we're going to read about in Genesis 1, God created all that there is. 
right? He, he created everything. I appreciate, Ryan, how you prayed. I had already thought to, to say, man, what God created, the heavens and the earth, included galaxies that can only be seen through telescopes, right? And things beyond what we can even see yet with the human eye. God created that. Yet God also created tiny particles that we can barely even see through microscopes. God created those. Like he created all of it. Everything that is outside of himself, he created. And we're going to get to see uh, how he created in these next few weeks as we go through chapter 1. But I think verse 1 is just intended to impact us by telling us that he created. That he created everything that there is, everything outside of himself. He is the creator. And that alone should stir awe and wonder in us, right? In our hearts. We're impressed by some things people make around us. But he made everything, like created heavens and earth. You read even at the end of the Bible what is going on in heaven itself. Read Revelation 4 and the angels singing to one another. What they are praising God for, at least in significant part, is that he's the creator. That he made them, right? That he made the universe. That he made everything that there is. They are still eternally in awe and wonder that God is the creator. And I would just ask you, do you have awe and wonder uh, related to God as creator? Like, do you ever look up at the sky and just think, he made this? Like, do you stop around and look at the hundreds of people in this room and think, God made every one of these people? Like, as you learn about things in the classroom and learn about science and think about how he's created and fine-tuned things, do you think, wow, what a God that he made this, that he created all of this, that it is his idea and it's his power that brought it to be. God created everything that there is. But I think this, this text also communicates to us, though, this header, this summary, communicates to us that God is, I was trying to think of what word to best use, that God is pre-existent, that God is eternal, that even before the heavens and the earth existed, God existed, right? In the beginning, God did something. Right? God started space and time. God created space. He began time. So even before Genesis 1-1, there actually was someone before there was even something. Right? There was this God, this powerful, eternal God existed prior to things. He existed pre the beginning. Right? And this verse refutes very simply the idea that some try to argue that the universe is eternal. That matter is all that has ever existed. This verse says, no, like God is the one that has always existed. That matter has a time that it began. Time has a time that it began. God does not. There's a kid's song that Sovereign Grace Music wrote where it says that God has no birthday. I love that. That's a simple way to remember that he has always existed, that he predates Genesis 1-1. He's the one who in the beginning starts speaking. Read Psalm 90 sometime. Uh, Moses, the same man who we believe recorded Genesis for us, he wrote Psalm 90. And in Psalm 90 verse 2, he said to God, he said, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God has always existed. God is the creator, but he existed before creation. He has always existed. But the third thing I think that this can teach us, this summary sentence, is that God created truly from scratch. That God created out of nothing. Philosophers, theologians like to use this phrase that he created 
ex nihilo. It just means like out of nothing. You may see that in books sometimes if, if you read that. But God truly created out of nothing, right? Some like to think that there has always been God and there's always been matter. That, but, and that they've just eternally existed together and that God just sort of shaped the things that were there and made them into what he wanted them to be. But that is not how Genesis 1-1 depicts things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Like he made all that there is in this universe and even beyond in the unseen realm, he created it all. When we create things, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. There's a fun conversation to have with kids sometimes. When we create things, we're not really creating it. We're rearranging stuff, right? Like when you make a painting, uh, you are not creating something. You are taking little molecules. I don't even know if these are the right terms, but you're taking little molecules that are all together in your little paint jar and you're putting them on your brush or your finger if you're a kid and then you're putting them on some other molecules and mashing them around and then you're mixing some that maybe make different colors, but you are not actually making something. Like you're rearranging things. God did not create that way. Like God didn't take stuff that already existed and just shape it. He spoke it into existence. That is creation like you cannot do, that I cannot do, that none of us are capable of. Uh, when we, I, I was reading some quotes from Carl Sagan, who I do not agree with almost anything about. Uh, but he said this one time, he said something to this effect. He said, if you want to create an apple pie from scratch, you have to start by creating a universe. I was like, that's a clever way to say that. Uh, that. That we don't actually create things like God created. He created in a unique way, a way that should stir awe and wonder in us because we have no category for it. Right? We have no observable thing in our experience that we can see that parallels that, that God truly created from scratch. He spoke things into existence. We're going to see these next few weeks. And I, I want to acknowledge before we move on to a few other points, uh, something that's important about this belief about God creating. And I, I would want to maybe address some who may be skeptical in the room who think, yeah, this text says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth but why should we believe that? Like you're just taking Moses' word for this. There was no human being there to see that. Uh, this is just some man recording this. There's no human there to witness it. But what I would say to you, if that is your question, if you are genuinely seeking to understand, is the fact that no human was there to witness it does not mean no one was there to witness it. Right? Uh, God, if he truly is the one who created, this is the only way we would know this. Right? There would be no video recording of this. The only way we could possibly know it is if God told it to us. And that's what we believe that he did. And I would suggest to you that everyone's belief, yours included if you're a skeptic, everyone's belief about the origins of the universe and the origins of human life is based on faith. There is no time machine to go back. There is no way that you can know with the certainty that you long for uh, to, to know what, how we came to be, how this world came to be. And the Bible acknowledges that. I acknowledge that, that we receive this by faith. Hebrews 11, chapter 3 says it very explicitly. The author says that by faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are, vi are visible. So we believe this by faith. We take God at his word that he was the one who created the world and this is the way that he created it. 
and must be believed by faith. And so we have this summary in verse 1. Before we get to verse 2, I wanted to have a small aside about something that some people imagine being between verses 1 and verse 2. There's a theory that has developed over the last couple centuries uh, in the church uh, that has spread and become fairly popular called the gap theory. Uh, What it means is that people believe and they'll try to argue that between verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, And then between that and verse 2, where the earth is without form and void and there's a spirit hovering over the waters, they would suggest that there is a gap, maybe even a massive, massive gap in time where all sorts of things happened uh, that that we don't necessarily know about. And, And what they believe is that maybe there's even these ages gone by of the history of the world, the history of the universe that comes between verse 1, where God initially made everything, and then verse 2, where in now our present age, so to speak, God formed the world this way. Uh, So they suggest that there is a gap where they suggest and try to make sense of all sorts of things with this gap. They try to explain how there's geological records and fossils and things like that, that maybe that was in some previous era of the universe that is in this gap of time. They try to say that in this gap of time that that was when the angelic rebellion against God happened. And uh, many angels fell and that God eventually as part of that process just submerged the earth in water as part of the judgment uh, that he had upon the earth. This was made very popular by something called the Schofield Study Bible uh, over the last couple of centuries. It's become a, a view that many hold, that some of you maybe even would hold to And I think why people have suggested this is that they're trying to, uh, not all people who believe this, but they're trying to reconcile what they understand science to teach about geology and fossils and things like that that we see down in the earth or that background radiation, if you know what I'm talking about, that we see out in the universe that seems to indicate certain ages of the earth, things like that. They're trying to reconcile that with scripture and they're saying well, maybe this is a way to do that. That, that between verse 1 and verse 2, there's this gap in time. And, and may, they know, we all know, that there was some sort of angelic fall. Uh, and there's not a ton of biblical record about it, uh, when it happened, how it happened, what went down. But we know by chapter 3, we've got a talking snake tempting the human beings, right? That sin has somehow already entered in. That rebellion against God has somehow already happened. Uh, and people are trying to make sense of that and say, well, maybe it happened in this gap. Maybe there was something that happened that we just don't know a lot about. And I, I will say this. The gap theory is not impossible. It, it, I cannot say that, that. That it's an impossible interpretation of Scripture. But I'm not persuaded by it. Uh, that there's this massive gap in time between verse 1 and 2. One, because I think, Verse 1 is like a header over the chapter, not a a timing sequence. But I I think if we try to come up with a theory, and I say this with respect, not with snark, a, a theory like the gap theory, I think that is more a product of cleverness than exegesis. Like it's trying to come up with a clever way to make sense of things and to, to make things fit together than a natural reading of the text. Uh, the, uh, there is no actual record of a gap. That, that's a guess. That's a conjecture. That is arguments from silence. And we should be much more, as people who are reading the Bible, much more driven and guided by what is said than what is not said. 
right? By what is definitely said than speculating about what is not said. We can't just assert anything the Bible doesn't refute and say, well, that, that must be true. Like, that certainly could be. Like, that should not be our approach. We go by what God has said and let that guide us. And God doesn't owe us an explanation for all things, right? Like, God doesn't have to tell us the exact chronology of when angels fell in heaven. Like, he doesn't owe that to us. We may long to know that. It may pique our curiosity, but he doesn't have to explain everything, and we don't have to explain everything. Right? We, we take what God has said and we, we follow where it leads. And so uh, I just wanted to acknowledge that, that some of you may be familiar with that, this gap theory and why I'm not persuaded about it, uh, by it, um, but I cannot say it's impossible. I cannot say it's just purely illogical. I just don't see it from the biblical text. I will say I'm sympathetic in part uh, with them, though, because when we get to verse 2, what you do have when we get to verse 2 is you have a version of the world that looks quite different from our world today, right? That, that God did, uh, there, there's, before we even get to day one, there's this, this uh, watery world, this water-covered world that God wanted to be that way and then shape and fashion how, uh, how he wanted it ultimately to be. And so what we see in verse 2, uh, the next heading is going to be that the stage is set for these six days of creation. The stage is set by God. And you see in verse 2 that it starts this way. It says that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. That's how it's described. This, uh, this initial form of the world that God spoke into existence, that it's without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. A couple things briefly that, that I want to note from this as God is like setting the stage for the creation account that's about to unfold. One is that when it talks about darkness being over the face of the deep here, we should not read that to imply evil, right? Like sometimes we, we see any reference to darkness and we think evil, something bad, something bad. Uh, I don't think that this is indicating that there was inherent in the very beginning evil at play because if when we read about day one next week it's going to say that God separated the light from the darkness right and called this day and this night and that's part of God's good creation even before sin so darkness itself doesn't imply evil it doesn't imply bad it's not like God created this evil world so darkness doesn't imply evil but what I, I don't want to be missed in this text verse the start of verse two is that God purposefully created the earth this way at the beginning and then made it into a way that he could fashion it, that he could separate waters, that he could fill these things with life. God wanted to create this way, right? He could have just spoke and made everything instantaneously like he wanted it to be, right? But for some reason, and he doesn't fully explain it to us, he made this earth initially with water covering it. Right? With, with uh, darkness being over the face of the deep. And he made it without form and void. God wanted to do this this way. It's like he's setting the stage very purposefully for how he wants creation to unfold. It's not like, the, it's not like God stumbled upon the universe and there just happened to be this ball that's covered with water. And I was like, oh, let me figure out what to do with this. Like he made it this way on purpose so that he could show his creativity, that he could show his ability to make things progress and to tell a story. 
And he says, so he says that it's covered by water. We're going to see as we get into days two and day three of creation that God's going to separate those waters, right? First, he's going to do it like vertically, creating sky. And then he's going to do it horizontally, creating land and seas. Uh, he's going to separate this water over the first few days of creation. But these words where he says that it's without form and void, I want to take just a moment and explain what I think those mean or what, how they're setting the stage. Uh, I love, I don't know a ton of Hebrew. I don't know it as well as I know Greek, which is not saying a ton. Uh, but I, I do know that these two words that are without form and void, uh, Something gets a little bit lost when we translate it into English because these are actually like rhyming words in Hebrew. Uh, it's, this is how they would be said, that they, the earth was tohu and bohu, uh, that, they were, that it was without form and void, tohu and bohu. There's no real great way to say that in English when you're trying to translate rhyming words <laughs> into other languages that doesn't exactly work. But a closest way that I could maybe think to, to explain this is, and they don't rhyme, but they're similar, is that God made the world initially uninhabitable and uninhabited. Like that it was without form, that there was no real way for anything to even live there on its own initially. Thus, there was nothing actually living there. There was nothing filling it. And it's like there, there's these two, if you want to think of them as problems, I don't know if that's the right word to give, but these two limitations to this earth that God has initially created. They're tohu and bohu, uninhabitable and uninhabited. And then what we're going to see in days one to six is God rectifying that like we're going to see in the first couple of days him spreading things and making the world habitable that then now things could live on it and then as the days progress we're going to see that he actually makes it be inhabited he's going to actually put plants he's going to put animals he's going to put sea creatures and birds he's going to put human beings into this world that he's created and I just love this, that, that God created this way, rather than just speaking all instantaneously, because it's showing not just God's power. He could have done that by just in a moment making it how he wanted, but it's showing something about God as a storyteller, God as somebody who can move things, that can press them along, that can shape them, that can develop them. He's showing things about himself uh, and his abilities that we wouldn't have known otherwise if he just would have spoken it into existence as is. So the stage is set for these six days of creation. But before we end this text, I don't want us to miss the last detail of verse 2, which maybe is just as important, if not more, uh, than some of the other details in here that we see, and this will be the last heading, we see the Spirit hovering over creation, the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. And what we see here is that God didn't just create the world and then ignore it. Right? God didn't just drop it into being and then just turn his back and go do other things. Right? Like God created it and then he engages with his creation. Right? That, that God doesn't abandon it. So Moses records for us that the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So who is this? This spirit of God. This, this word spirit, uh, some of you may know like it, it can mean like wind or breath. Uh, we're going to see it in Genesis a few times in some of these stories that come up. But it is not just breath or wind. It says it's at attached to the word God, the spirit 
of God. And that's why most translations, I think rightly so, capitalize the S and, and talk about this as being God's spirit, like a personal dimension of God. Uh, this is not teaching us everything about the Trinity that we will ultimately know as the scriptures unfold, but it's at least hinting at it, right? There, there's something, there's someone here that uh, God is talked about as the creator in verse 1, but then there's this mysteriousness of the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep. So it at least makes you scratch your head a little bit. And I, I think we do have the doctrine of the Trinity like in seed form or germ form right here, that there's, there's a plurality to God. There's something complex about God even at the very beginning, but not in a way like most other ancient religions would have believed where there's these rival gods, where there are these rival deities who are at odds with each other, but this spirit of God is working in conjunction with God, that, that he is, is at work in the very creation that God has made, not contrary to him, but with him, working alongside of him. And what Moses records him doing, and the only way he would have known this is by God sharing this with him, is that the spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. So again, you have like a water-covered earth, and you have the Spirit of God. We don't know exactly the optics of, and the Spirit of God's not a physical being, right? But this image is used of hovering, almost like a bird over the waters. Remember like the story coming up where Noah sends out the birds over the waters as the ark is starting to come down, or this even makes me think of when the Spirit descends over Jesus when he's being baptized. It's like this idea of like hovering, almost like a bird over the waters, but based on what follows, what's immediately about to follow, I think we can also picture in the Spirit of God hovering over the deep is that he is poised, like he is ready to do something. He is ready to affect change. He's ready to work uh, with God, with the Creator, even as the Creator, to bring order, to bring life. He's poised to do something, to actually affect change. And I think we can learn some significant things here about God and even about the Holy Spirit from this verse. Two things I would say. One, we can see that God superintends his creation, right? Like I said before, he didn't create it and then just leave it alone. Like he created it and then he hovers over it. He's active in governing it, right? He is above the waters. He, he's ruling over the waters, right? So he's superintending creation, but also you see more than that, he's engaging with his creation, right? Because you can govern over things without really engaging them, right? You can govern over or like rule over people without really knowing them, without really engaging with them. But God is not pictured here just purely sitting on the throne of heaven, but the spirit of God is pictured hovering over the face of the waters, He's actually present, and this is before any human beings ever even exist, right? Uh, but with creation as it was in that very beginning state, the Spirit of God is engaging. He's ready to actively be at work, uh, ready to do things on behalf of God. And this is setting the tone for what we're going to see as we get into these chapters of Genesis, that ultimately God actually walks with the human beings, Right? Uh, ultimately, God speaks with them. Like, he doesn't just hover. He doesn't just kind of mystically hover. He actually engages with his creation. And think about this. In these two verses, you have the God who spoke everything into existence, all power that is unmatched, unfathomable. You also have him engaging personally with that creation, right? 
that that is not beneath him, that that is not below him as creator. He condescends to us, right? He, he condescends to his creation to attend to it, to engage with it. So what a God, uh, this creator who condescends to engage with his creation. So I've talked a lot about creation. In the spirit of Francis Schaeffer, I want to take my last few minutes and I want to tell you about Jesus uh, because this has everything to do with Jesus. This, this, like we said, Genesis is prologue for a greater story even than creation. It, it's prologue. It's setting a stage for more than just the six days of creation. It's setting the stage for the Son of God to come into our world because eventually God would do much more than just hover over the face of the waters, Right? Eventually, God would do much more than just as God the Father in some disembodied way, walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Eventually, God would do more than these things. Eventually, he would do something much more awe-inspiring than all of those things. He would actually enter into creation, right? Not just hover over it. He would enter into creation. And the story that unfolds, if we believe this, that there really is a creator, that really spoke this universe that we inhabit into existence, if we believe that and we follow the storyteller, the one who tells us, uh, what we see is that God made a world that was beautiful and good. Right? We're going to see that the next several weeks. But we, if that, that world, I would say, was corruptible. Right? There was a way it could go wrong. And boy, has it gone wrong. Right? There's still good in this world. There's still goodness to be seen in it, but we have deeply corrupted, as human beings especially, we have corrupted this world. Like we have made a mess of God's world. Rather than being in awe of the one that made us, rather than humbly submitting to him, we have rebelled against him without exception. Like all of us have rebelled against him, and instead of submitting to him, we use his world for our purposes. Right? We use the people that he's made for our purposes. We use our bodies and our minds for ourselves rather than for him. So we have made a mess of this world. And God could, maybe even should, if we were to understand him in certain ways, condemn us for this. Should judge us for this. Like God hates sin. Like he, he is repulsed by it. But the good news for you and for me is that even before Genesis 1-1, some things had happened, right? Because God pre-existed Genesis 1-1. And the Father, Son, and Spirit, we have record of this as the scriptures unfold, even before God created the heavens and the earth, they had agreed of how they were going to redeem the broken world they were about to make. They knew what they were going to do. Like they had plotted together in a gracious way to say, man, these creatures, these human beings who we're going to create good and glorious are going to mess up this world that we are speaking into existence and hovering over and forming and shaping. They're going to ruin it. And they're going to uh, run in rebellion away from us. But they made a plan together to redeem this broken world and to bring sinners like us back to them, to make us right with them. But it would come at a great cost. This was not an easy fix. It was something more impressive even than just speaking the universe into existence because the only way that we could be redeemed, the only way that we could be brought back to God was for, by an act that was even more humble 
more condescending than hovering over the face of the deep. The only way that we could be reconciled was by God the Son, one of those members of the Trinity that had plotted and planned together that he would actually become one of us. Think about this, the creator, the one through whom we learn all things were created and for whom all things were created, became a human being, like entered into the story. The creator became part of the creation. He became a human being like me and you. Without losing his godness, he became one of us. And the reason he did it wasn't just to see what it's like to be a human, to to see the good and the bad of it, to get a better view of the world. The reason he became a human being was to live in an obedient way to the Father that none of us do. Like to, to gain good standing with the Heavenly Father as a human being But then ultimately, he came here to take the sin of people like us, the sin of people like me, upon himself, to let it be counted to him. And that is what the cross is all about. That God the Son, the one who spoke this universe into being, the one who spoke the atoms into existence that would get rearranged and made into the nails that would go through his wrist. Like he allowed himself to be put to death, not just by fellow humans, but by God the Father. He allowed himself to be punished like we deserve to be punished as rebels, the ones who have not respected our Creator, the ones who have run away from him. Like he allowed himself to be crushed on the cross under the wrath of God that should come down on us so that we might be forgiven, that we might be released from that, that that could be removed from us. Our guilt could be dealt with. It could be fully removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And he died a death that is unfathomable, and he was laid in the tomb. But then God began not just creation. God began a new creation that blows this away. Because in a tomb outside Jerusalem on a Sunday morning, God breathed life back into him and raised him up from the dead fundamentally different and better than he had been even before as a human being. That he raised him up incorruptible, right? And that was the start of new creation. And what has happened now for 2,000 years is that new creation has grown and grown and grown because what God does, what he can do even today in your life is as we hear that good news of Jesus, he can bring life to us. He can breathe eternal life to us who are still mortal. He can breathe eternal life into us and unite us with his son so that we can be forgiven, that we can be made right with him once again. And what he calls us to do in response is we hear this son of God who was crucified for us and raised for us. The response he calls forth from us is one of repentance and faith. That we acknowledge, man, I have been a rebel. Like I have looked at you as my creator and I have just rejected you and walked away from you. I am sorry. Like please forgive me. So we turn from our sin, we repent, and then we place our faith, we place our trust squarely fully on his son Jesus and what he's done for us in his life and his death and his resurrection. And if we respond to this good news in that way, God is glad to forgive us. He's glad to welcome us home, glad to receive us back to himself. That is a story that is far more impressive even than this. And that is not a slight to creation. It's just saying God has always been a storyteller that was bending toward an even better story. 
where he becomes not just our creator, but he becomes our redeemer. He becomes our savior. And his spirit still hovers today. Like I have been praying, I pray every week that the spirit of God would hover over this room. And if there's some who are here who have not received eternal life, that the spirit of God would move in your heart today. And that as you hear this good news of Jesus, you would respond in the faith and the repentance that he calls you to. So may we stand, every single one of us, stand in awe of our creator, but stand even more in awe of him who has become our savior.